curious, how many of you have actually heard a sermon preached on this passage? Okay, a few of you. I, I have read a lot about this passage. I've heard a lot of lectures on this passage, but honestly, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon preached on this passage, which means the bar for me isn't very high. <laughs> so that is a good thing. Uh, it is certainly a challenging passage, and it raises a lot of questions. There are landmines on both sides. So on the one hand, our egalitarian culture hates passages like this because it talks about men and women having distinct roles. And that just runs roughshod against everything that our culture believes in. On the other side, there have been those men who have used this passage to stifle and silence the voice of women in the church. And so wherever you fall regarding application and interpretation of this passage, there are challenges on both sides. But yet here it is. A passage that was given to the church at Ephesus in the first century and a passage that is given to us, First City Church, in 2018. And so what, one of the first things that we have to believe and start with is that this is for us. Do we believe that this passage is for us today as a church? And so when we navigate this, wherever, however we navigate the challenges and the questions, we have to enter in believing that this passage has something to say to us as the inspired word of God. We need to lean in, no matter how challenging and no matter how difficult this passage may be. We also need to stop being reactionary. This is what I mean. So often, we interpret and apply this passage more out of fear of being called either liberal or those that hate women, rather than letting the word of God shape the conversation for us. And so as we enter in this morning, I want God's word to shape our thinking. And, and if there's a temptation towards one side or the other, if there's a sort of a fear that you have when you engage this passage based on sort of your story and experience, understand that this morning there's probably some things that I'm going to say, no matter where you are, that will challenge you. And that's good for all of us. So let me make a couple points before we jump in. First, I cannot say everything and answer every objection that this text raises. I can't answer every question. We'd be here for an hour and a half, and I, no, nobody wants to be there here for an hour and a half. And, and that's okay. And so that's why we're doing a Q&A this evening. And if you haven't RSVP'd for that and you want to come based on what gets provoked in this sermon, talk to me afterward. I can give you the details for that. Or happy to talk to you after the service, or we can go out for a cup of coffee or grab lunch or breakfast sometime. Also, there is, certain, there is room for certain levels of disagreement here. I think while the main point of the passage is pretty clear and direct, how this gets applied in specific ways in the church, there's some room for disagreement. And so there are pastors, there are churches, there are theologians that we love, that we have an affinity to, that we learn from, that we disagree with on this. And that's fine. So we need to exercise grace and, and, and realize that this, in some ways, the church is trying to do the best it can to figure these things out. But my concern is that as a church, First City, we are clear about how we apply this. And we're clear about our convictions. And then finally, as, as Pastor Paul said, like, no matter where you are in your faith, whether you are a confident believer or you're someone who is unsure of what you believe, or maybe you're just a straight-up skeptic, understand that there is space for you to wrestle here. There is space for you to bring your pain and your questions and your struggles we want to extend <clears throat> hospitality to you. 
We want to give you the opportunity and the time you need to work through, whether it's this passage or other passages, because our heart for you is that you would know Jesus and follow him and love him and be his disciple. And so again, if you have questions about this passage or anything else, happy to talk with you. Pastor Paul's happy to talk with you. There are plenty of members of this church that are happy to talk with you. And so here's what we're going to do. First, I just want to walk through this passage and kind of just explain, hey, here's what this passage means. And then I want to draw some implications for us as a church. So let's start by considering some context, because some context is helpful in getting us to understand what this passage is talking about. So if you remember a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that the city of Ephesus in the first century was home to the Temple of Artemis. So the Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was dominated by the cult of Artemis. So Artemis was a goddess in Greek and Roman uh, mythology. And she was the goddess of fertility, virginity, and the wilderness and the hunt. And so there was this whole entire cult that dominated the city, that influenced the city, and it affected the way women behaved and viewed themselves. On top of this, Ephesus was home to what was called the New Roman Woman Movement. So kind of think of this as a first century feminist movement. And if you take the cult of Artemis and this new Roman women movement, you had a city that was heavily influenced by both men and women, but especially a group of women who were sort of asserting themselves in a new way. And they would do this through provocative dress. So that kind of speaks to the passage we looked at last week. And sort of attitudes towards the roles of men and women in the home and in in society. And some of these women were even pushing for positions of civil authority. And so you kind of had that going on in Roman culture, and then you also had this entering into the church. And so many of the attitudes and beliefs that this cult of Artemis and the new Roman women asserted also ran against biblical teaching about male and female roles in the family and the church. So the church of Ephesus was facing sort of a two-headed monster. On the one hand, you had the false teachers. Remember them from a couple weeks ago, wanting to talk about genealogies and mythologies? And then you had those influenced by the cult of Artemis and new Roman women, and they were teaming up, and they were coming into the church and wrecking havoc. How would you like to be Timothy pastoring that church facing those challenges? And here's what was happening. These false teachers were coming in, and they were attacking not only the gospel, but they were attacking the structure of the church. Because if you want to take out an institution, you don't just attack its message and its brand, you attack its infrastructure. So if I wanted to take down Facebook, you know, Facebook is kind of in the the news now. If I want to take down Facebook or Google because I'm I'm mad that they're sending Ben and Amanda away. If, If I want to go after them, I don't necessarily just go after their image and their brand. I go at the leadership structure because if I can get the leadership structure to crumble, then I can get the institution to be weak and to fail in its mission. And so if the church is not strong and secure and healthy in its structures then faithfully proclaiming the gospel and making mature disciples is put in jeopardy. Remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.15, the church is the pillar and the buttress of truth. We hold up the truth for the world. So if our structures are not healthy, then our ability to do that is compromised. And so here's the, the really the heart and importance of this passage for us, First City Church. If we are to be a healthy church that faithfully proclaims the gospel and makes mature disciples of Jesus, then our authority and leadership structures must submit to the word of God. And the only way they're going to be healthy is if we're underneath what God has said. So we need to see the authority and leadership structures that God has given us 
as good, for our good. And so let me phrase this as the main idea of my sermon here. A healthy church submits to and builds up itself on God-established authority and leadership structures. So let's jump into the passage with some context already laid down. One of the things we need to understand is that the direct context of 1 Timothy 2, so this chapter, Paul's instruction have to do with the worship service. Now, it's not just applied to the worship service, but it's important for us to keep that in mind as we think about what this passage means. So verses 11 and 12 state this, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, what does this mean? A woman learning quietly and remaining silent. Well, here's a good initial question to ask. Is this silence absolute? Does scripture say that a woman is never allowed to speak or use her voice during a worship service? I hope you know the answer to that question is no. Women are called to sing. Here's just one basic example. Really sing. Like, use your voice to sing, not just mouth the words. So women are called to use their voice in that way. Then if you go to 1 Corinthians 11, the same Apostle Paul who wrote this passage writes about women praying and prophesying in the worship service. It also talks about covering your heads, but that's a different sermon. (laughs) Praying and prophesying is speaking in the worship service, using your voice in the worship service. And so if we look at the whole of Scripture, it becomes very clear that being quiet is not some absolute never-talk silence. It's actually something much bigger and something more specific. Much bigger in this way. Verse 11 and the emphasis is less about auditory noise and more about a posture of the heart. So learning quietly with all submissiveness echoes the instruction in verse 2, where all of us, men and women, are called to live a peaceful and quiet life before civil authorities. So the idea is, women, the posture of your heart is to be not as agitators, those who buck against and undermine and resist authority, but those who come under the authority structures built in the church, seeing those things as a good thing, even if it's run by imperfect people. Women, don't buy the lie that you need power, sort of move into power and authority roles in order to experience fulfillment. And so Paul is calling ladies, hey, there's to be a posture to your heart related to the authority structure in the church. This is more important. This is more what's in view here is the heart. In this way, quietness carries a much bigger implication than just not talking because you can keep your mouth shut and still have a heart that is bent against authority structures. At the same time, quietness is more specific. What is quiet directly contrasted with in this passage? teaching and exercising authority. And so the practice of literal quietness, so there is a place where Paul is saying, hey, literally, this is where you don't use your voice, is in contrast to teaching that is done during the gathered worship service. So here's what most biblical scholars believe what was happening in Ephesus. 
So it was probably a group of women that in the middle of the service, because the way they did worship was a little bit more interactive in some ways. And so in the middle of the worship service, they would just kind of like speak out and challenge the authority. Or some of them, when there was more of the dialogue point, would kind of interject in the midst of that dialogue. Or some were just, hey, I want to be a teacher. I want to I be in this position of authoritative teaching. So the point that Paul is making in this passage is that for these women who are trying to exercise an authority through teaching, Paul is saying, hey, ladies, your role in the church is not this. And I know that probably is hard to hear, but for the authoritative structures of the church, Paul is saying in this way, ladies, this isn't your role to play. You are not called to exercise authority. You're not called to teach in the gathered worship service. Now, here's an important implication for us of this passage. This is a little bit of an aside, but I I think it's important for us to understand to apply it in other ways. One, what's happening right now? This teaching, this teaching time in the gathered worship service carries an authoritative weight. Like this isn't just some spiritual pep talk or just some good advice. This carries the weight because we are unfolding and looking at the word of God. And so there are some Some churches that will kind of treat this space, this time, this teaching, sometimes it's authoritative, sometimes it isn't. I think an implication of this passage is is it's always authoritative. Like this is serious stuff that we're doing, that I'm doing, or any other man that stands here and preaches. And so we're never going to back away from the, the weight and the authority of this time right here. It will always carry that weight for us, First City Church. This is why Sunday is so important Because Sunday is sitting under the authoritative word of God, sitting under a teaching that is meant to shape us, shape the life of our church, shape our discipleship. It is to carry a weight and authority in our life that other things do not. The preacher on podcast does not. The book that you read does not. It is in the gathered worship service coming as the people of God under the word of God. That carries weight and authority. And so it speaks to the importance of this context. And so in summary, here's what verses 11 and 12 say. They take the instruction that is for both men and women to submit to authority and apply it specifically for women related to the authority structures in the church. And how this plays out is in the way that they engage authoritative teaching. You are to come underneath that. The role of that is to be occupied by men, and we'll look at why here in just a second, And so that is what Paul is addressing specifically. In verse 13, Paul then grounds this prohibition of women from teaching and exercising authority over men in the church. And he does it in the created order. Verse 13 reads, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So here's what Paul's doing. He's pointing to Genesis 2 and the creation of men and women, man and woman, to show that the authority and leadership structure in the church follows that of the family. So Adam was created first and given authority and leadership over his home. And the implication is is that men are given authority and leadership in their home. They're to occupy that position. And this isn't because they're intrinsically better. This isn't because they're intrinsically more noble. This isn't because you're stronger, men. Your call to lead isn't, hey, look at the way you're wired and look at my physical strength. That's why I'm called to lead. No, opposite. You are called to lead based on how God has established the order and he's given you that strength. He's given you that wiring to lead. 
And so the ground for authority and leadership in the home and in the church is a God-established structure. And why does the authority and leadership structure of the church follow that of the home? Well, again, this is an entirely other sermon, but there are these beautiful parallels between marriage and family in the church found throughout Scripture. But here's kind of the simple way to think about it. Again, in 1 Timothy 3.15 and in other places, the church is the family of God. We're a family. And so the structure and the leadership of the church is to mirror the home because we are one ginormous family, brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 14 adds further weight to Paul's argument. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Transgressor. So from Genesis 2 and the creation of Adam and Eve, Paul then goes to Genesis 3 and the fall. Let me make clear what this verse is not saying, because I've heard people teach this, and I think, sorry, it's stupid. This does not mean women are more prone to deception than men. First of all, this passage isn't about who's more prone to deception. It's about authority structure. Second of all, good grief, the word of God and just common sense experience tells us that men are just as prone to deception. Like, who were the biggest problems in Ephesus? Men, false teachers. Like, every cult that has ever been started in history largely has been started by men. Guys, we are not any less prone to deception. That's not Paul's point. What Paul is pointing at is how when the authority structure that God established is violated, that we are prone to temptation and deception. So Satan comes to Eve and to tempt her, and Adam, rather than stepping into his God-given role as leader of his family, goes passive. And if Eve was deceived, Adam knew exactly what he was doing and sinned on purpose. So this is an indictment on Adam in ways that are even more uh, strongly, the, the, just the, the implication here is stronger for Adam. But that's, again, another sermon. There's like 20 sermons in here. And so rather than stepping into his role, he steps back. And Eve, rather than allowing her husband to come in and step in and deal with Satan and tell him to get lost and protect his family and use the authority and leadership God had given him, she stands in his role, and she is deceived by this illusion of power. She's deceived by Satan and all his sweet talking about the power she will gain, and she's deceived and she falls into sin. And so what this is saying is things go very badly when we rebel against the structures God has put into place. Conversely, this means that they are in our place for our good so that the family may thrive and the church may thrive. And so when we undermine the structure, when we resist the structure, when we reject the structure, we open ourselves up to temptation and deception. We begin to move away from truth and the godly protections we all need. Look, could Adam have been deceived by Satan? It's possible. But if Adam would have stepped into his leadership role, And if he would have guarded and proactively protected his family, and if Eve would have come alongside him as that strong support and ally that she was to be, and if they would have stood in their roles as God had called them to be, my guess is Satan would have went away disappointed. So Paul points to Genesis 3 as a warning against allowing false teachers from undermining the structure God has put in place. Timothy, church at Ephesus, first city church, 
Do not give false teachers a place to deceive us as Satan deceived Eve. And so here's a summary of verses 13 and 14. The ground for, for Paul to prohibit women from stepping into an authoritative place in the church is the created order. God created a structure and called men to play a role and called women to play a role. And he uses Genesis 3 in the fall as an example of what happens when that structure is subverted. So there is kind of the passage in a nutshell. Now the implications for us as a church, for city. So as this relates to our overall structure, I want to make four brief points. First, God has established a structure of leadership, authority, and roles in the church for our good. Through the structure God has established, the church exercises spiritual authority. So our authority, the church's authority, is a very specific kind of authority. And we are all, men and women alike, called to submit to the spiritual authority and build the church with the structure God gives us. Look, I am a man and I'm a pastor of this church and I am called to submit to the authority of the church. There are ways that I am in submission to you as a body. There are ways that I live in submission to Pastor Paul. Like I'm not floating up here by myself outside the structure doing whatever I want. No one escapes submission. We're all submitted to one another. And the structure is good and it is for our good. God established this so that homes may thrive, churches may thrive. And if scripture presents leadership and authority and submission in this way, why are we so allergic to these topics? Why are we so allergic when the topic of leadership and authority and submission comes up when scripture celebrates these things? Now, if we're honest, of course, it's because of sin. And it's because of the pain we've experienced and because of the hurt we've experienced, because we've seen this structure abused. We all have those experiences that we carry with us. But here's another question for us. Are we going to be imprisoned by our experiences or are we going to live in the good that God holds out for us? We have to consistently ask ourselves, is it the good that God holds out for us in his word going to be the thing that we live, live under? Or will we doubt and resist and undermine the structure? How about instead of undermining and doubting and resisting, we see it's good and we work to protect it from abuse, protect it from sin. So that's the first point. Second point, within the church, the role of pastor or elder, so we use these terms interchangeably, same thing, is distinct to men. And so at First City Church, we humbly, but unapologetically and with absolute conviction affirm that God calls men to the role of pastor. Once again, this isn't because men are inherently more spiritual or because they're stronger or biologically wired in a particular way, but because this is the role God has called men to. This is the structure he has established. And so pastors, we... We exercise a specific kind of leadership and spiritual authority in the church. And we exercise it through teaching. That's one way we do it. Through shepherding, through counseling, through overseeing the administration of the sacraments, by guarding doctrine, by exercising church discipline and certain administrative decisions. And so that, those roles carry a weight and authority and that's why pastors and that's why men are called to serve in this way. But let me add this 
point, men, just because you are a man doesn't mean you have spiritual authority in the church. Men, just because you are a man doesn't mean you have spiritual authority over every woman in this church. Are we clear on that? I don't, I don't necessarily think a lot of you guys believe that, but I know some people teach that, and I just want us to be clear. Like Paul is very specific. Like the, the authority that he's talking about is exercised by a particular role in the church, which he's going to get to right away. So next week, chapter 3, talking about an elder. It's not a blanket men just go, exp- just go exercise authority. It's contained within a particular role, even though men are alone are called to occupy that role. So within the church, the role of pastor elder is distinct to men. Third, teaching and authority while connected are not synonymous. And I think this is where we can get a little confused at times, and understandably so, because sometimes this stuff isn't super clear. While teaching is a way to exercise authority, as this passage tells us, not all teaching in the church puts you in a place of authority over someone, meaning not all teaching carries the same authoritative weight. So Paul's prohibition against teaching is not a blanket prohibition, just like his call to silence is not a blanket call. If this were the case, a woman could never say anything about the Bible to a man. Women, don't ever, don't ever evangelize a man. Ladies, don't ever talk to a man during gospel community. See where this gets weird? Wives, don't ever correct or teach your husbands. So, I mean, if, if, that's, if, if you've heard that, if that's your mindset, again, much grace, I want to be humble towards that. But what do you do with passages like Acts 18 with Priscilla and Aquila? You, you have a, a couple who go and disciple Apollos. And if you're thinking, well, you know, Priscilla was acting under the authority of her husband. I'm going, hey, way overthinking it. This is a sister in the Lord who sees a dude who has a lot of potential to teach the gospel and says, hey, man, you're a little off here. Let me help you understand the gospel better. And so you have a sister in the Lord discipling a guy who was one of the most powerful teachers in the early church. And did Apollos go, hey, no, you're a woman. You can't teach me. No. Also, what do you do with passages like 2 Samuel 22 and the prophetess Huldah? King Josiah finds the book of the law, and he's like, what do I do with this? So he goes out and seeks the prophetess Huldah to hear from the Lord. I need to hear from the Lord about what to do. And she instructs Josiah and the leaders about what they should do. Is it because there wasn't a man prophet to be found? No. Jeremiah is going around. Zechariah is going around. There were men that that Josiah could have sought out. He goes to the prophetess Huldah. So guys, it doesn't, we don't have to overthink this and get this weird about teaching and authority. Basic common sense tells us just because someone teaches us something or disciples us in something or corrects us doesn't mean they have a role of spiritual authority over us. And so there are teaching and discipleship contexts where men and women can teach each other without violating this passage. Where does this happen at First City? Well, here's some examples gospel community, theology seminars or other types of seminars that we do, book studies, Bible studies, prayer gatherings, and any other context we may come up with. There is freedom in these contexts. Here's the point that I want us to get. There's freedom in these contexts, like true freedom for us as brothers and sisters in Christ to teach and learn from one another, and I want us to embrace that. I want us to celebrate that. And this is another reason why I want us to have a very big and clear view of what happens on Sundays 
Because if we're clear about this, then there's freedom in every other context. Now, are there other contexts where we might say, hey, yeah, this is authoritative teaching by the elders? Yes. But we'll make those clear. And so there is a lot of freedom when we recognize that not all teaching carries authoritative weight. Similarly, leadership and authority, while connected, are not synonymous. And we're going to talk about, about this more in two weeks when we look at the office of deacon. But while leadership is a way to exercise authority, not all leadership in the church puts you in a place of spiritual authority over someone. And so there are leadership roles in this church. Deacons, gospel community leaders, worship leaders, ministry team leaders, and others that carry leadership responsibility and may even involve forms of discipleship, but they don't carry spiritual authority. Look, if you're in a gospel community, your gospel community leader is not in spiritual authority over you. Hey, they're a good brother and sister in Christ. There's someone you can learn from. There's someone that can help you. And yeah, lean into them. But they don't have spiritual authority over you. And this is why we want men and women serving in all of these roles. We celebrate that. We want that dynamic to be taking place at First City Church because we recognize that authoritative spiritual leadership and how that leadership is exercised is a very clear and specific, narrow thing. And when we're clear and specific about that, when we're clear and specific about the role of pastor and how a pastor exercises his authority and leadership, then there is great freedom for both men and women to serve in leadership and discipleship capacities, sharing the work of the ministry and discipling each other. And we don't have to get wrapped around the axle about authority because we aren't overextending the bounds of spiritual authority. And so these are some of the broad applications for us as a church. Now let me just say a couple things to the men and the women. First, men. I'm going to speak briefly to you because I'm going to really hit home these points next week when we talk about eldership. We are called to take leadership in the home and in the church. And men, we need to step up and be proactive in this. May we not be passive in our leadership roles. May we not be passive in how we care about the health of the church and the health of our families. Even if you aren't married, even if you aren't a pastor or a deacon or a gospel community leader or serving in some official leadership capacity, you should care deeply about the health of this church. We need men who are spiritually and emotionally mature. We need men who are wise and faithful and bold and humble. We need men who will use their presence and their hands to pray and to serve and to sacrifice and to lead and to disciple and to correct and to guard. We need a healthy culture of men because it's the men in this room who will step into leadership positions. It's men in this room who will become elders of First City Church. And so right now, Men, we need to be cultivating healthy leadership, healthy spiritual life. Because if we are not healthy, then the church will not be healthy. And so let's be faithful to walk as God has called us in the power and the grace he has given us through Jesus. Ladies, I know many of you in this room have experienced bad leadership. You have had your voices silenced and stifled. You have had your gifts pushed down. 
by men who, whether by their words or their actions or the way that they structured the church, that was harmful and hurtful and in some ways abusive. If that's you, know that I am deeply sorry. I'm sorry that what you, you've experienced what should have been for your good and what God intended for you to thrive in crushed you. When men sanctified their sin with, with God's word, terrible things happened. And I also want to say sorry because I've been in, in this group of, of, of men before where we've spent more energy guarding against liberal stuff than actually caring if our sisters in Christ were thriving. And I'm sorry for that. And it breaks my heart to think of the ways that that, that occupied my mind at times. But ladies, I want you to understand, just because God has called men into this leadership and authority role doesn't mean that you're second class. doesn't mean that you don't have a vital place and role to play in the church and the mission of God. And verse 15 points to this. You know, if this passage weren't challenging enough, here's verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What does that mean? (laughs) Well, there is certainly debate about what this verse means, but here's what I am pretty convinced it means. If we follow the train of Paul's thought in verses 13 through 15, he starts in Genesis 2, talking about creation of man and woman and the structure. Then he goes to Genesis 3, the fall. Where is childbirth first talked about? Genesis 3.15. This is what it reads. I will put enmity between you and the woman. So this is uh, God speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first reference to the birth of Christ. So here's the point. Here's what Paul is pulling on. Though the woman was deceived though she fell into sin, and though one of the curses of that sin was pain and childbirth, through childbirth, through women, the line of the Messiah would come. The Messiah himself would come. The purpose of God, the plan of God, is accomplished through a woman. And so, ladies, your role in this is not to be the one who is deceived and then stuffed down a second-class citizen. The mission of God does not go forward without women. Paul's point here is that the plan of salvation necessarily runs through women. They have a vital and important role to play. And then even in Genesis, when God creates Eve to be Adam's helper, the word helper is important, very important. Because here's what we can do. We can read helper this way. Mommy's little helper. Santa's little helper. Right? Demeaning. Almost, almost as if someone is underneath you. The word helper in Genesis 2.18 is etzer, and it does not signify inferiority. See, the books of Exodus, Deuteronomy, Psalms, and Hosea all refer to the Lord as the etzer of Israel. Here's what this means, an ally. It's often used in a military context. It's often used in to show a strength of support. Someone coming alongside me that I need who is strong. God is the ally. He's the etzer of his people. Rather than a helper that's sort of beneath somebody, we should think ally. Eve was Adam's ally. This is what John McKinley says about the word etzer. 
Just as Etzer tells of God's relatedness to Israel as the necessary support for their survival and military perils, the woman is the ally to the man without which he cannot succeed or survive. Unlike the helper that could seem optional and allow the man to think he's otherwise adequate for his task without the woman, the distinction of ally marks the man's dependence upon her contribution. This dependence is plain when we consider Israel's need for God's contribution as her ally. What sort of ally is the woman to the man? She is a necessary ally, the sort without which he cannot fulfill humanity's mission. Ladies, your role is not second class. Ladies, you are an ally in the mission of God. You are a necessary ally. Married and single alike, young and old, you are all necessary. Like, remember what God said to Adam in Genesis 2? It's not good that man should be alone. Then what did he do? Did he make him a bro to hang out with? No. He gave him a wife. And just as the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply is impossible without women, so the mission of God to go into all the world and make disciples is impossible without women. Scripture is very clear about this truth. All throughout Scripture, example after example after example of women playing vital roles in the mission of God, the Apostle Paul himself regularly celebrated and talked about the role women played in being allies to his mission. So ladies of First City, I am so grateful for the role you play. I'm grateful for the ways you serve, and disciple, and lead, and teach. Vital part of this church has been your role. I'm grateful for the gifts you bring to the table. And I have benefited greatly and learned much from you. And so again, speaking as a man and as a pastor, Let me say, ladies, I need you. Not, I need you to go through some tasks. Like, I need you to teach me and disciple me. I need to learn from you. I need to be shaped by the the gifts that you bring to the table. And I want you to be on mission with me. I want to be on mission with you. And men, let me just say one more thing. May we never treat women as nice to have but not necessary. May we never silence and stifle the voice of women in this church. Husbands, may you never stifle and silence the voice of your wife, but rather listen and encourage and seek out her as your ally. Men, may we never silence the voice of women in this church, but may we listen and encourage and ask they would speak into things and help shape things. Men, maybe we never stifle the gifting and the abilities that women in this church have, but may we partner with them and learn from them. And men, let's stop being afraid of being called liberal by a bunch of uptight, controlling, fundamentalist dude bros. Women are absolutely a necessary ally made in the image of God without which the mission of God does not go forward. Let's treat them that way. And let's all together join in the mission of God. Because building a healthy church doesn't come by accident. We have to be purposeful and intentional. We have to work for it. We have to fight for it. So many voices in our culture, so many voices in the church, so many fears, so many hurts, so many sins, so many challenges. So I want us us to bring all of these things to the Lord. I want us to bring all of these things to God and recognize, hey, we failed. 
There's been ways that we have failed to be faithful to the, word, the way God's word has called us. But this is the beautiful thing about the gospel. Jesus died for passive men. Jesus died for abusive men. Jesus died for aggressive men. Jesus died for neglectful men. Jesus died for women who have tried to grab control. Jesus died for all of the ways that we have sinned against each other. And by his power and by his grace and by his spirit, we can be transformed into one body, one people, working together for the mission of God. And so by God's grace and his power, let's lean into the roles he has called us to as men and women, and let's join together on the mission of God. Amen.